Well, this morning we will be looking at Genesis chapter 24, and we will begin by reading verses 1 through 9. These are the words of God. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, Please put your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. But you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife from my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your seed I give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Our gracious Heavenly Father, open this magnificent word to us by the power of your Spirit. Help us to see all of your power and your faithfulness as you work through your faithful servants, flawed though they may be. O Lord God, to give us encouragement how you might work through us today. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis chapter 24, concerning the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, is the single longest episode in Genesis, which means it is of central importance. And this story bears many of the hallmarks of great storytelling. It focuses in on just a few characters. It is highly personal, and it shows close up the faith and faithfulness of ordinary believers to God and to one another in the face of challenging circumstances and an unknown future. And through it all, it shows the faithfulness of God to sovereignly guide those who trust in Him and to work His purposes and His blessings in and through them. Perhaps more than any other episode of Genesis, it shows us a very personal relationship with God in detail and in real time. The story opens by showing us the faith of Abraham, who having secured a little piece of the promised land in chapter 23, when he purchased burial grounds for Sarah and for other members of his family going forward, Now Abraham is concerned with another milestone he must achieve before he dies, and that is finding a godly wife for his son, Isaac. All God's promises run through Isaac, the miraculously born son of promise, who in his birth and in his being symbolically offered up to God on the altar in chapter 22 is a living picture of the true seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. It was considered a father's duty in that day to obtain a good wife for his son, and that duty fell very heavily upon Abraham 
he felt that burden, he felt that obligation. First of all, he's advanced in age, as the opening verse tells us. Now, if you remember, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. You can see that in chapter 21, verse 5. And now, when these events take place, Isaac is 40 years old. You can see that in in chapter 25, verse 20. So, Abraham is now 140 years old. And given the paganism that dominates the whole region of Canaan where he lives, Abraham feels this burden. He feels that both godliness and wisdom demand that he must seek a wife for his son Isaac back among the greater clan of Abraham's father, Terah. Abraham knows from God's words to him back in chapter 15 that Canaan, big picture, is going to go from bad to worse for the next several centuries until the iniquity of the peoples there is complete. It is such that it demands that God, as a matter of justice, dispossess them from their own lands and replace them with the righteous, with God's own people. You can see God talking about that to Abraham back in chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Now, Abraham knows what paganism is, and he knows what it does. Because Ur, where he grew up in Mesopotamia, and indeed his father's house, was originally pagan. You see this in Joshua chapter 24, verses 2 and 3, where God says to the people of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river. He's talking about the Euphrates River. In old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from the other side of the river and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac. So Abraham's own family had a pagan background. But when God called Abraham, it appears that his father Terah and other members of the clan came to faith, at least professing faith in the one true God. And so it was not just Abraham, but his father Terah as well, and pretty much the whole clan that set out for Canaan. You can see that in chapter 11 of Genesis, verses 31 and 32. But when they came to the city of Haran, which is part way to Canaan, but Haran is still up in Mesopotamia, across the Euphrates uh, uh, River. And here, let me, let me mention, with the name Haran, don't get confused, because Abraham had a brother whose name was Haran, who died before they left Ur, but whose descendants, including Lot, came out of Ur with Terah and the clan. But here, we're not talking about Haran, Abraham's brother. We're talking about Haran, the city. So when Terah and his clan came to the city of Haran, which is roughly halfway to Canaan, uh, they stopped, apparently due to Terah's age and poor health, because he ends up dying there in Haran. And then, and then after his death, Abraham and Lot resume the journey to Canaan. You can see that in Genesis 11, verses 28 through 
27 through 32. And also you can see this being described by Stephen in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 4, where the chronology of the events is set forth very clearly. So this left part of Terah's clan back in Haran, including the family of Abraham's brother Nahor, which is why verse 10 of our text refers to the city of Haran as the city of Nahor, the city where Nahor and his family lived. So that Abraham knows that while he has no guarantee that every single member of his father's clan is walking strongly with the one true God or that they are completely free of idolatry, he does know that his father Terah uh, professed the Lord to the point of taking his whole clan out of Ur and setting out for the land of Canaan. Abraham simply cannot join his son to a Canaanite woman. We already have the example of Lot, who married a Canaanite woman, and we know how well that turned out. His daughters, his sons-in-law, were completely and entirely shaped by paganism. So both faith and wisdom dictate that Abraham seek a godly wife for Isaac among Abraham's extended family in Haran. So faced with this weight, with this important mission, and really being too old to make the journey himself, Abraham turns to the only one he can trust to carry out such a determinative and delicate mission. And that is Eliezer of Damascus. That is Abraham's chief servant, whom Abraham trusts with everything he has. Now, Eliezer is not even named in chapter 24, but he is named back in chapter 15 when Abraham laments to God that he has no son. And thus, unless God works a miracle, his heir will be his chief servant, Eliezer of Damascus, Genesis 15, verses 2 and 3. So as of chapter 15, think about this. This adds some depth. Uh, to the events of chapter 24. As of chapter 15, Eliezer stood to inherit all that Abraham had because he had no heirs. And yet in chapter 24, it is Eliezer whom Abraham is trusting to make sure that Abraham's line continues by finding a godly wife for Isaac. So this puts Eliezer in the company of Saul's son, Jonathan, as being one of the most faithful friends and servants in all of Scripture. Remember, Jonathan stood to inherit the throne from his father, Saul. And yet, Jonathan supported David, the Lord's chosen. And he did so for one reason, faith. Faith in God and God's promises. And this is the same kind of person we find in Eliezer. And we see why Abraham trusts this man with everything he has. And now he calls on him to find his son a godly wife. Abraham drives home the importance of the mission by making Eliezer take an oath in verse 9. He also strictly forbids Eliezer from taking Isaac out of the promised land back to Haran of Mesopotamia, verse 6. 
He doesn't want Isaac to be enticed and influenced to not follow the leading edge of the promises of God. Abraham says that Eliezer, though, will be released from his oath if the woman will not agree to follow him back to Canaan and marry his son Isaac. You can see that in verse 8. At the same time, Abraham strongly expresses his absolute assurance that God will go with Eliezer and that God will guide him and God will give him success. Verse 7. So Eliezer springs into action. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, that is, the city where Abraham's brother Nahor settled, which is Haran. Now from Hebron, where Abraham was, down in the very southern part of the land of Canaan, up to Haran, which is to the north, is about 460 miles. Now that's a, that's a journey, a real journey in our day. In that day, that was 18 days journey. Because what you could typically make with a mule or a camel or some animal like that was somewhere between 20 and 25 miles a day. And with a caravan of 10 camels and all the men to handle them, this is a major undertaking. Because in addition to all the normal supplies, the food and the water and so forth, Eliezer has to take with him suitable gifts for the would-be bride and her family, which would be customary. Plus here, Eliezer must make take gifts of sufficient number and worth to be able to prove that God has richly blessed his master Abraham so that marriage to his son Isaac would even be a consideration. But if God blesses Abraham's uh, uh, Eliezer's mission... He also needs the ability to bring the bride-to-be and any servants who come with her on the 460-mile, 18-day return journey. So this is quite an undertaking. Eliezer gets right to it, and he travels to Haran. And when he gets to Haran, he comes face-to-face with the sheer impossibility of his task, humanly speaking. Eliezer realizes that anything short of a home run will be a failure. And yet he has no hope of even making it to first base apart from God sovereignly bringing it to pass. And so Eliezer prays to God in faith and wisdom. Unlike Joshua in Joshua chapter 9 who approached the Gibeonites who wanted to make a treaty with the Israelites, he he did all of his due diligence. He approached the matter with extreme wisdom and prudence. The one thing he did not do was actually pray to the Lord for the Lord to protect and provide. Eliezer here exercises great wisdom, but he also exercises great dependence and faith by casting all of his plans upon the Lord in prayer. Verse 11. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, and the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, 
Please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will also give your camels to drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. So Eliezer places his hope completely in God, answering his prayer and providentially giving success. But Eliezer does so according to wisdom and prudence. He does not ask God to write the girl's name in the sky or to make her glow in the dark. He asks that God indicate the right girl by building, having built into her and then having the events reveal her character, her godliness, her courtesy, her industry, her self-sacrifice, her hospitality, her cheerfulness, her graciousness. And on top of that, he asked that God would miraculously cause the right girl to show up right away and that God would providentially keep Eliezer from approaching the wrong girls and only approach the right one. And we see that God immediately answers Eliezer's prayer. Verse 15. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now the young woman was very beautiful to behold. A virgin, no man had known her. Now Eliezer didn't ask for these extra qualities of, of beauty. God just threw this in on top. Because as Paul tells us in Ephesians 3 verse 20, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think. And that's what we see here with Rebecca. And so we're told she went down to the well, filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my Lord. Then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they finish drinking. Then she quickly emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran back to the well to draw water and drew for all his camels. Now a camel that is traveling in the desert can easily drink up to 25 gallons of water. And there are 10 camels here. That's 250 gallons of water. And even if we just cut that in half and say 125 gallons of water, this is a lot of water that that Rebecca spontaneously is volunteering to draw and which she actually does draw all by herself. This is a lot of work. That's a lot of water. So God has answered Eliezer's prayers But just like we would be, Eliezer is left wondering and and wanting to make sure that that this is really the one that God has really answered his prayers. He's wondering what he should do next. So we're told in verse 21, the man wondering at her remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. 
So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrist weighing ten shekels of gold. And he begins to ask her her identity. Now, sometimes it seems like that he's placing this jewelry on her right now before he knows who she is. But it's clear as we go forward in the text, verses 47 and 48, that he's not actually placing the jewelry on her at a point. He's getting it ready. He has it in uh, preparation. But first he needs to make sure who she is. Verse 23, he says, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please. Is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? He's seeking further confirmation from God. So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. So here is the further and final confirmation. She is of Abraham's extended family. She is the daughter of Abraham's nephew. In other words, Abraham is her great uncle, making Isaac her second cousin, and even today in all 50 states, second cousins are legal to marry. But um, she offers further hospitality in the form of room and board. And this is the point where Eliezer places the jewelry on her. We can see that in verses 47 and 48. So Eliezer here, as we would expect from his faith, he publicly worships and gives thanks to God. Verse 26, Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. And this is with Rebecca present, which is going to have the additional effect of placing faith in the living God openly in the center of events for Rebecca to see. So at this point, Rebecca excitedly runs home to tell the news to her family. Verse 28, so the woman ran and told her mother's household these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebecca saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels." Now, in the Hebrew particularly, it's clear that the jewelry here, among other things, is motivating Laban. We're going to get a closer look at Laban later on in Genesis when Jacob comes to work for him for a number of years. And it's going to become very clear there what we get just a hint of here, which is that Laban was a bit of a greedy man. He was highly motivated by wealth and riches. And you have to realize that these pieces of jewelry that Eliezer gives Rebecca, these are lavish gifts. Verse 22 says the bracelets were 10 shekels of gold. Not completely clear if that means 10 shekels together or each one was 10 shekels. But a shekel of gold at today's prices would be worth about $800. So if these bracelets, even if they total 10 shekels together, 
That's about $4,000 a piece. These are not small braces. These are big hunks of solid gold. And if they were, if they were 10 shekels a piece, then you're talking about bracelets that would be $8,000 a piece. So this, this is impressive. This is, these are meant to be lavish gifts. So they come to the house where every accommodation is made to Eliezer and his men. Verse 32. Then the man came to the house and he unloaded the camels and provided straw and feed for the camels and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. Eliezer, a very focused and faithful servant, is intent on his mission. Reminds us of Jesus who once told his disciples when they brought him food, because they knew he was hungry, they brought him food and urged him to eat. And Jesus said, I have food to eat of which you do not know. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John chapter 4, verses 32 through 34. This exactly is the mindset of Eliezer in our text. Then Laban says to Eliezer, speak on. So he says in verse 34, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, who, who the family of Nahor would know, she has bore to my, uh, a son to my master when she was old. Now they knew that she was barren for all of her life for the whole time they knew her. Now they learned that she is born to Abraham, a son in her old age, in his old age. And to him, that is to the son, he has given all that he has. Now you see one of the important purposes of this lavish jewelry that Eliezer has given to Rebekah is to provide corroboration, irrefutable physical evidence of the truth of Eliezer's testimony that God has greatly blessed Abraham and his only son and heir, Isaac. Then Eliezer proceeds to recount in detail the entire story of Abraham's charge to him, of his oath to Abraham, of Abraham's assurance that the angel of the Lord would go before him and prosper his way, of his release from the oath if the woman would not come with him and marry Isaac. Now, this is very, very important because it removes the pressure upon Rebekah or her family of believing that Eliezer is going to be in trouble if Rebecca doesn't go with him. You see him telling the whole truth here in detail. This is an important part of seeking God's will. And once again, we see the integrity and the godliness of Eliezer. Eliezer tells of his exact prayer to God when he arrived in Haran and how Rebecca appeared and happened to be the girl he approached and how she lived out exactly the content of his prayer right down to watering all the camels, and how Eliezer then placed the jewelry upon Rebekah and worshipped the Lord for his faithful answer to prayer, verses 37 through 48. So at this point, 
having disclosed everything in detail, Eliezer puts the, the question to Laban, that's Rebekah's brother, and her father, Bethuel. Now you see, the brother was involved in this because when Bethuel dies, it's going to fall upon the brother, Laban, to be responsible, God forbid, for standing up for his sister should she be mistreated in some way. He's going to be the one who is going to have to stand forth for her and do something about it. So verse 49, Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. So it is clear from the way God has worked here that his hand is in this. His fingerprints are all over it. And it's also clear here, and although it's not stated, that Laban and Bethuel have already talked to Rebekah and ascertained her wishes. Just as he, she will be asked her wishes again when we get to verse 57 when it comes to leaving earlier. See, if they're going to put it to her, the smaller question about whether she wants to leave earlier, they're certainly going to put to her the greater question about whether she wants to leave at all and to go and become Isaac's wife. So nobody is being sent off to get married here against their wishes. It's like a a double throw switch for electricity. You've got two switches. Both of them have to be in the on position for the current to flow. Either switch has the power of saying no. It takes both switches in the on position to say yes. And that's what we see here in the background. Now, having said that, This is a particularly big decision for Rebecca, traveling far away from her city and her immediate family to marry a man she has never seen and who has never seen her. But clearly God is behind this, and he is inclining her in this way and giving her supernatural peace. And in terms of the factors that she could actually see with her own eyes and grab hold of to assure her, at the top of the list would have to be the same thing that has persuaded her family. It is just the overwhelming evidence that God is all over this. His fingerprints are all over it. So Eliezer worships the Lord again, and he gives gifts to Rebekah and her family, and everyone rejoices. Verse 52, And it came to pass when Abraham's servant heard their words that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother, And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. And they arose in the morning and he said, send me away to my master. So Eliezer is focused. He is laser focused on serving the Lord and serving his master, Abraham. And he wants to leave and get back right away. Now, no doubt some of that would have been because of Abraham's advanced age. 
he, he regards the possibility that his master could die before he could get back. He wants to get back so Abraham can see that God has blessed and answered prayer and provided a wife for Isaac. Rebecca's family, on the other hand, very understandably, don't want to see her go off immediately. They want her to stay for at least 10 days so they can have that kind of very special time for with her before she goes off. But in the end, they put the question to Rebecca herself, whether she is willing to leave right away or whether she wants to stay for a few days. And she indicates that she is willing to go according to Eliezer's wishes. So that is verses 54 through 57. So they wish Rebecca farewell, and they send her nurse with her. You see that in verse 59. Now the word nurse there in Hebrew means that this is a maid who has been with Rebecca her, her entire life. Rebecca never remembers a day when this maid was not there in her family and was not her special attendant. So this is someone who is very, very close to Rebecca. That's going to be a great comfort to her in, in going to this strange land. And they also sent at least one other maid with Rebecca because verse 61 refers to maids plural. We don't know how many, but we know it was at least two. And finally, her family blesses Rebecca. Verse 60, our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your seed possess the gates of those who hate them. Well, then the story fast forwards to the final scene when after some 18 days of travel, they finally arrive near Bir Lahai Roy, Lahai Roy, rather, Bir Lahai Roy, which is even further to the south of Hebron where Abraham was, verse 62. What this indicates is that Isaac has taken a number of the herds and the shepherds and so forth and gone to separate pastors. And as Eliezer and Rebekah and the caravan are approaching, it turns out that Isaac is out in the field walking and meditating, verse 63. And you notice in verse 63 and verse 64 how it says that Isaac lifted his eyes and saw the caravan, and it says that that Rebekah lifted her eyes and saw the man walking. In the Hebrew, what it seems to be saying is that in God's providence, they both lifted their eyes at exactly the same moment, and they both saw one another for the very first time at the exact same time. Once again, you see God all over these events. So Rebecca dismounts, which is a gesture of respect, and she asks Eliezer who this man is. She already senses in her heart, but she But Eliezer removes any doubt. He says, it is my master, verse 65. So she veils her face, which would be a customary indicator in that day that she was betrothed, in this case, to Isaac. As Eliezer tells Isaac the whole story, everything that has happened, which was no doubt of great encouragement and assurance to Isaac, verse 66. And then the story ends in verse 67. Then Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent, thus indicating publicly to all that Rebekah is taking Sarah's place of honor as the leading lady of the clan. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's 
death. What a story. And it's true. That's the best part. And so as we draw to a close, I want to return to a theme that runs throughout this beautiful story, and that is the power of simple faithfulness and how God shows his power and his blessing in and through the simple faithfulness of ordinary disciples in ordinary life. Think about the character Samwise Gamgee in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Throughout all the books, we love Sam, of course, for his steadiness and his guilelessness and his faithfulness. He's always there for Frodo. But we never really think about Sam as being heroic or of his traits as being particularly powerful. Now, Frodo is heroic. Gandalf is heroic. Aragon, Legolas, Galadriel. We think of them as heroic and powerful, but not Sam. I mean, Sam is just Sam. But we're glad that he's there. Everybody likes Sam. And he's Frodo's servant and friend. But as we get into the last book, and particularly as we get well into the last book, we begin to see Sam in a different light. And it begins to dawn on us that he really is heroic. And before the end of the book, he is literally carrying Frodo up the mountain so he can finish his mission and destroy the ring. I want to submit to you that the same thing is true in the Christian life. Faithfulness, steadiness, reliability, guilelessness, in other words, not being manipulative, kindness, always being there, always being faithful in the little things, these become heroic when they are done day after day. Not only do they mount up over time, but they ready one to do the really big standalone heroic thing when the hour of need arises. What makes the hero, the sudden hero, ready to be the sudden hero? The fact that they are the small, faithful one all along the way leading up to that moment. And that's really what we see in Eliezer in our text. There's not a lot about him in the Bible. He did not chop Goliath's head off. He did not part the Red Sea. He did not kill a thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. But what a believer he was. What a disciple he was. And what a difference he made. May we all walk in the discipleship school of Eliezer of Damascus. Because it's through small acts of faithfulness by ordinary disciples that God bestows the vast majority of his faithfulness toward us and bestows the vast majority of his blessing upon us. Over time, faithfulness is powerful. It is heroic. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.